to understand that Lent is an invitation to turn away from the old and to embrace the new. Lent is a time of putting aside the things in our lives that may distract us so that we can experience the life of Christ and that life to the fullest. The season of Lent is an intentional call to deep repentance. It's kind of like a yearly checkup on our spiritual health. It's common, though, to fixate on those habits, those things that we want to get better, those things that we want to do less of or not do anymore at all. And that's good, but we have to avoid that try harder, give up cycle. And instead, see this as a way of letting go of something to receive something better. So let's just take a minute. Maybe close your eyes. And instead of starting with the problem, let's start with the solution. Let's start with the answer. Let's start with Jesus. Jesus, we want you. We're scared. We're ignorant. We're hurt. We're hiding. We're overconfident in our own abilities and lacking in faith in yours. So God, we ask right now that you would let us set aside those things that keep us from you. That during this season you would scan us, scan our lives, our thoughts, our emotions, our affections, our affiliations, our allegiances. And then guide us so we can line all those up with you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Throughout this season, we will be giving that invitation, that opportunity to reflect and to line those things up, both in the learning guide, you'll see those, and as we worship corporately. As a kid, one of my ongoing anxieties at a certain point in my age, I don't know how old I was, maybe 13, 14, somewhere in there, I was, I was filled with this overwhelming anxiety that I was going to be forgotten, that my life was going to be meaningless, that I was going to live and die, and then no one would remember me. And I don't know if it was because at the time I was really fascinated with uh, monuments and tombstones. How many of you have done that, where you go out and, and do the etching on tombstones? You know, you find the dates, and you go through there, you go to the, in Austin, where I grew up, we'd go to the state capitol, and it's surrounded, the grounds have all these statues to various famous people and armies and, and you know, politicians. And, and I would stand there and I would look at them or I would go to a cemetery and I'd, I'd try to find, you know, the oldest person who was there, who was born the, the longest time ago and where did they live. And, um, and I was just overwhelmed with this dread that no one was going to remember me that my existence was going to be meaningless. Dallas Willard suggests that there are four essential questions that every person is trying to answer, whether they realize it or not. And I see these reflected in that search for significance to be remembered that I was dealing with at that time. 
He says these four questions are, what is reality? Who is well off or blessed? Who is a truly good person? And how does one become a truly good person? Now, for those of you uh, who aren't familiar with Willard, he was the head of the philosophy department at USC for years, an incredible um, academian, but he was also a deeply thoughtful Christian and wrote quite a bit about life in Christ. But it was always reflected with this philosophical bent. Well, seeking answers to these questions that, that Willard writes about can help us figure out how to make meaning out of our lives, because that's what we're trying to do. All of us as human beings are meaning-making creatures. In one way, that's what makes us human. That's one of the main characteristics of being created in, in the image of God, is that we seek to make meaning out of our lives. I think that's what I was trying to do as a kid. I think that's what I'm still trying to do in a lot of ways. And I think specifically that's what the disciples were trying to do. So we're going to look at a text this week. Jesus is leading his disciples. We, we talked about how last week, how it's turning towards Jerusalem. The whole, the whole axis of Mark turns as Jesus turns towards Jerusalem. And so he is, he is preparing his disciples for what is to come and how to carry on after his crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension. So we're reading from Mark chapter 9. Let's look at that. They went out from there and passed through Galilee, but Jesus did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching the disciples and telling them, the Son of Man will be betrayed in the hands of men, they will kill him, and after three days he will rise. So once again, Jesus um, repeats where he's headed, what is happening. And once again, the disciples don't seem to get it. They don't seem to understand what he's really saying. Next verse, but they did not understand this statement, and they were afraid to ask him. When they came to Capernaum, after Jesus was inside the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they were silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Now this is interesting because if you remember last, was it last week? Where Jesus asked the disciples, who do people say that I am? And Peter responds, you were the Messiah, the Christ, right? So we get the identity of Jesus established. In a way, now the disciples are asking that. Hey, who do you say that I am to each other? Well, I'm going to be the greatest. No, I'm the greatest, right? They're arguing among themselves. So they're trying to figure out who they are after Jesus has established who he is. After he sat down, he called the 12 and said to them, if anyone wants to be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And then he took a little child, had him stand among them. Taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. Now this is really interesting here. We talked a lot about it at the teaching team this week. A couple things stand out. One, Jesus doesn't rebuke them. You would think, with their, all their posturing and, hey, I'm better than you, no, you're, no I'm better than you, right? That, that Jesus would say, you bunch of arrogant doofuses. Can I say that? Why are you arguing about that? You're proud. You shouldn't do that. But Jesus doesn't do that at all. 
He doesn't criticize them for trying to figure out their place. He doesn't criticize them for for seeking to have influence. He doesn't criticize them for seeking to understand how to be significant. This is not a rebuke against that. It's because that is not the question. We all have that. All of us are asking that question. What is reality? What does it mean to live the good life? How does one become a good person? This is reflected in this. We need to give the disciples a break here. Because I don't think Jesus is looking at this as necessarily social ranking as much as how do they achieve significance with that. And I think that's demonstrated in his answer. Jesus doesn't berate them for asking this. It's not wrong to seek to accomplish things, to be recognized. But how and why we do this makes all the difference. This is the key. How we do this and why we do this makes all the difference. Jesus is on a tear throughout Mark to redefine what Willard calls the good person. All through Mark, we see this. Jesus is redefining this. Who's in? Who's out? Who's welcome? Who's not? Who should be honored? Who shouldn't with that? Who is well off? Who is blessed? Jesus might frame Willard's questions like this. What is life really about? Willard says, what is reality? I think Jesus says, what is life really about? What does it profit a man if he loses If he gains the whole world but loses his life, what is that life all about? What is that life that is so valuable that you shouldn't lose it? Then I think he says, what does it mean to be great? In the terms of the disciples, what does it mean to be great in the kingdom? Because Jesus uses that. He says, whichever one of you would be great in the kingdom. So he uses that term. And who are the really great people? And how does one become great. I think that's the way Jesus is framing this. And to teach us this, Jesus does something significant. He takes a child as the emblem. So instead of saying, hey, here's a to-do list. Do this, don't do this. Go to this school. Worship at this church. Do these things. He doesn't do that. What does he do? He grabs a kid out of the crowd. He grabs his kid as an emblem. And we have to understand that in the ancient world, the status and rights of children stood at the bottom of the social scale. Now look, parents have always loved their kids, okay? So we can't take this too far. Obviously, parents have always loved their kids. But as as far as society goes, kids were not to be, they they were to be seen and not heard if seen at all. They were treat they were treated as almost objects by society as a whole. They had no rights. They had no status with that. So for Jesus to put this child and say, hey, you want to be great, serve this child, that would have been mind-blowing to the original audience. But it doesn't end there. Because we see time and time again Jesus elevating putting air quotes around elevating, because there is no true status in that, but elevating the least, the last, the leftovers. Women, 
Jesus includes them in the inner circle, lifts them up, honors them, responds to them, talks to them in a way that was way contrary to the social status of the time. Outcast. Those without degrees or economic status, the powerless, the afflicted, all are invited. Not just to sit at the table, not in some kind of condescending manner, oh, you poor little thing, let us worship you in, let us welcome you in here. There's no condescension in Jesus' welcome. It is a truly honoring, come sit at the table by me. It is a place of honoring those who have been left out, those who have been oppressed, those who have been excluded. It's symbolized in the child, but it doesn't stop with the child. We're going to see this time and time again in Jesus' ministry, how he does this. And y'all, as I prepared this, as I wrote this, I thought, how long, <clears throat> how long have I neglected this teaching? How long have I sought the place of power and honor instead of using the privilege that I have that's been assigned to me arbitrarily? I didn't earn it. It's been assigned to me arbitrarily. How often have I used that privilege just to get more? Just to protect. Instead of using it to serve others. Instead of using it to honor others. Grace Church, we need to understand that Jesus placing the children in the center in a place of, promise, in a place of prominence summarizes his understanding of authority as service. It is not wrong to want to live a meaningful, significant life. But why and how we do that makes all the difference. And Jesus summarizes that by placing a child as the center of who we should serve. This answers the question, what is reality? It answers the question, what is reality? The kingdom of God is here, is reality. The kingdom of God is here. There is no longer any difference, male, female, Jew, Gentile, poor, weak, slave, master, black, white, educated, uneducated, whole body, disabled, does not matter. The kingdom of God is here. That is reality. We are all created in the image of God. We all belong with that. What does it mean to be great? To be great is to be the servant of all. That's what it means. That's how we find that significance. Is then using the privilege, using the power that we have, whatever that is, however great, however small, to serve others. Y'all check me on this. And I mean this seriously. Check me on this, because I said it the other day. It came out of my mouth, and I was kind of shocked when I said it. I said, you cannot be a Christian and not be a servant, and not be serving. Now, there are all kinds of litmus tests in our society today, right? For who's in, who's out, who's a good Christian, who's not. We see it, right? We're surrounded. We can't ignore it. In the politics, in society. Everybody's trying to define, well, you're a good Christian if you vote this way. Well, you're a good Christian if you buy this. You're a good Christian if you listen to this music. You can't be a Christian and vote for him. You can't be a Christian and go to that church. You can't be a Christian and do that, right? Who's in? Who's out? How do, how do we do this definition? 
And I found myself, as I've been following Jesus down this road in Mark, seeing time and time again the definition Jesus uses is serve. If you're going to follow me, serve. If you're going to follow me, lay down your life, right? If you're going to follow me, give up your life, come and follow me. And that means serving. And I don't know how we can justify that. I don't know how we can understand that. I don't know how we can understand who Jesus is, what it means to be a follower of Jesus, if we're not serving. If we are not adding to our head knowledge these hands serving others. And so many of you in here do that so beautifully. And you really do. You serve beautifully. But we need to understand that this is not something superficial. This is not something a tag. This is not an add-on. This is at the core of what it means to be a good person. This is at the core of what it means to make meaning for us. Now, I'm not talking works. I know the first thing that's going to come up is someone's going to listen. They're going to say, well, then you're just talking about working your way into heaven. I'm not talking about heaven. I'm not talking about reward. I'm not talking about any of that. I'm talking about becoming who Jesus is calling us to become. That, that we are reorienting our whole reality around this idea that the kingdom of God is here. That there's no differentiation. We serve. And we serve primarily those who have been left out. Those who have been condemned. Those who have been overlooked. Those who we have judged as unworthy or unclean. Those we serve. But check me on that, okay? I might be off. How does one become great? We serve. And if we still think this is below us, if we still think we're too good for this or we're not equipped for this or how we do this, think about this. This is how God receives us. God does not receive us as the professional or the PhD or the head of the household or the successful politician or leader. But God receives every one of us as a child. We talked about this painting in our teaching team this week. If you can throw that up there, Roland. This is Rembrandt's Return of the Prodigal. Um, Henry Nouwen's book that is basically an extended meditation on this painting is incredible. It'd be a great read for Lent, those of you still looking for something to read. There's fascinating things about this. As in most things, Rembrandt paints himself into the picture. But also, if you look significantly at the hands here, this is really interesting too. You'll notice that one hand is feminine and one hand is masculine. Demonstrating both the, the justice and compassion of God is demonstrated in the hands of the Father. Y'all, this is the way God receives us as a child. As a child who has gone astray, as a child who has squandered everything, as a child who has done everything possible to be neglected, cut off, not belong any longer. God receives us with this love. Who are we to do anything like? 
Who am I then to turn around and show judgment against anyone? Who am I then to turn around and say, well, yeah, well, God received me, but you, you're another case. I don't think we have to look any further than this. Grace, more than anything, I see the Spirit leading, relentlessly guiding us into the place of deeper service as a church, of looking not only for our own needs, but also for the needs of others. Now, make no mistake, this has caused much grief and fear among our community. We may not identify as such, but I believe this is part of the root. It isn't easy. I doubt it ever has been or ever will be, but I don't see another way. And this isn't a punishment, as it's often taught. Bailey brought up a great question or a great observation that oftentimes this thing about, hey, if you want to be the greatest, then serve a child. It's almost like punishment. It's almost like, Jeff, dude, you're getting a little full of yourself there, son. So I'm going to have you go work in the nursery. That'll show you. Like, it, like, like he's, he's shaming us with this. It's often taught this way, right? Like, like, oh, you got, you got the big head. We're going to pop that ego. Go do this. And so children are literally taught as being symbolic of shaming people. How contrary could that be to what Jesus intended? Instead, this is an invitation, a joyful invitation from the Father to say, hey, you want to know what's real? Come be with the kids. Come sit with the kids. You want to know what it means to be great? That's awesome. You want to make meaning in your life? Of course you do, because you're created in the image of God. You're meant to have meaning in your life. You're meant to know what that meaning is. Let me show you what it is. Come sit with the kids. Come be with the homeless. Come be with the refugee. Come be with the disabled. Come be with the outcast. Let me show you. This is what you do. You want to know what reality is? This is reality. You want to be great? You'll be great doing this. He answers all the questions. All the things that I was full of anxiety about, all the things that scared me, that kept me up at night when I was 13, 14 years old, the idea that I was going to cease to exist someday and no one would remember me and there would be no significance in my life, that my life would be meaningless. Jesus answers in this simple illustration of taking a child, embracing that child, says, do likewise. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. And we're going to transition into this time of communion, offering, reflection. Just a couple notes on reflection. On communion here, we've been very careful. I know there's this little bug that's going around <laughs> that has some people uh, has some people scared, some people interested. So just know we we do this every week. But so you know, with that, people preparing communion have thoroughly washed their hands. All the materials have been washed. We are going to make one change. When you come up to receive the bread, the cracker, you will be handed that today. Just as one extra precaution, you'll be handed. So you come up. You'll, you'll take the cup, but then put your hand out. You'll be given the cracker. And then, just like normal, we'll hold it. Sit close if you would. We'll hold it. We'll all take it together.
with that. Um, yeah. The table is open to everyone. The table is open as a gift. This gift that you're welcome at, not condescendingly, not at the bottom, but in full rights as a member of the family of God. You're welcome to this table. We take up an offering, a symbol that everyone here has something to give, and no one here is without a need. So we share with one another. And then, like I said, just because I have the microphone, do not believe what I say is true. Test it. Test it. Talk about it in your groups. Reflect on it in your devotions. But if there is something that has been said today that you need to act on, if there is something that the Holy Spirit has spoken to you that you need to do, you need to use this time now to write that down, take a note in your phone, whatever you need to do, so that when you walk out of here, you will act on it. Don't let it escape by being caught in some magical net that catches it as you leave the door. Take that intention with you to act on it. And thank you for being here.